Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor. First of all, big apologies from all of us for um, last week when we had a really good and I think very important conversation here in the studio with three activists against a proposed and to some degree already happening mine in the um, uh, Porcupine Mountains right on the shore of Lake Superior, which... um, which, well, it's very important. Uh, but you all didn't hear it, um, well, due to a mix of, uh, um, shall we say, well, reasons. <laughs> um, we will be talking to these three activists again next week, so I hope you can join us then. Apologies again for that. Today we'll be talking about several countries in Latin America. We will be talking later about Guatemala and Mexico. But we are starting with Ecuador, and with us to discuss the situation there is Jake Johnston. He's a senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. He's the lead author of that organization's Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch blog, and his article and op-eds have been published in outlets such as the New York Times, The Nation, The Intercept, Le Monde Diplomatique, Boston Review, and Al Jazeera. And uh, Jake, thank you for joining us again. It's good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I remember uh, good times in Ecuador, but that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Um, Fernando Villavicencio, who, who was a candidate in Ecuador's presidential election, was shot dead on August 10, then on August 15, a second Ecuador politician, local leader of the left-wing Citizen Revolution Party in Esmeraldas, Pedro Briones was um, killed um, too. And before that, in on July 20th, Agustin Intriago, mayor of the port city of Manta, was killed by a gunman and a local female soccer player, Ariana Estefania Chance, was also killed. What's going on? Yeah, exactly. As you mentioned, I mean, we've seen a string of really high profile political killings, assassinations. And, you know, while those all happened prior to the first round election, which was held last month, uh, they've certainly continued. Right. And I think not only has this been, you know, I think it's been shocking for everybody watching from outside. And of course, those in Ecuador, the, the level of political killings, which is really pretty unprecedented. But also just the general insecurity situation in Ecuador has become a serious concern and certainly has been sort of top of mind during this electoral process. So what we've seen is after a steady decline in homicide rates and crime rates overall under the administration of Rafael Correa, who was president from 2007 to 2017, uh, there's been a, a large spike in, in, in the years since. And of course, this has coincided with a tremendous economic crisis um, that begun even prior to the COVID pandemic, uh, but has certainly continued throughout. And what we've seen is really a a total dismantling of the economic and social policies of the Correa administration since he left office. A return to the IMF, an IMF-imposed austerity that has really decimated the state 
and, and really collapsed uh, the country's ability to respond to the current situation. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it. Um, let's talk about uh, Rafael Correa. Um, I remember at the time um, not just admiring him, but, but seeing Ecuador as a, like a shining star in Latin America that um, perhaps other countries would want to emulate. Tell us a bit about these 10 years And what happened since? How, how did we get where we are here now? Yeah, so to start with, with some of the significant changes and, and you know, developments that happened under the Korea administration. I mean, for, for one, you know, poverty uh, was cut drastically, right? Uh, this was coupled with a doubling of social spending, increased state investment and state involvement in the economy. And I think crucially, right, it, Ecuador is a dollarized economy, right? They use the U.S. dollar as its currency. And, and that really limits the ability of the country to respond to crises, right? I mean, they can't print money the way, uh, you know, central banks do in other places and certainly not in the developing world. But what Ecuador was able to do under the Correa administration was really implement some, some uh, you know, pretty uh, unique reforms and institutional reforms that allowed it to really weather some of these storms. So imposing taxes to bring capital back into the country, making it more expensive to, to send money outside of the country, uh, bringing the central bank under the authority of the central government, right? So we see, you know, this debate in the U.S., uh, the, you know, raising interest rates, throwing people out of work as a means to limit inflation, but really putting that under executive control and allowing them to, to use the central bank policy as a means to, to stimulate the economy and, and protect workers, right? So we saw not just the implementation of sound policies and, and promotion of social policies, but also institutional reforms that allowed the country to weather the global recession, oil price shocks, etc., relatively well. Now, when Correa left office, uh, his successor, Lenin Moreno, had campaigned as, as a sort of successor. He's from his party. This was supposed to be a continuation. But as soon as he got to office, that changed. There was a drastic split. He quickly returned the country to the IMF imposed harsh austerity measures and rolled back a number of these institutional reforms that we had seen under the Korea administration. And unfortunately, that directly after all of these changes, we had the COVID pandemic, right? We had this huge global crisis. And without those tools in the bag, right, uh, Ecuador just wasn't able to respond. And, and in those years since, Ecuador has had the worst performing economy uh, in South America, for which we have data. Hmm. It's so interesting that um, when a left president is um, it is at the helm, things look so much better. And then someone comes with the austerity measures and the IMF and everything goes to the dogs. Um, that's not a unique experience to Ecuador, is it? No, certainly not. I mean, I think we've seen it all over, right? I mean, we've seen this legacy of the IMF. And, you know, on the one hand, we have an IMF that's rhetoric has shifted in a lot of ways. And they've talked, uh, you know, the research department has done actually a lot of good research around, around many of these issues and talking about, you know, the policies that are necessary. But then when we actually look on the ground, the results in many of these countries, especially the developing world, Right, the results are looking a whole lot different than, than what the research department is talking about. Right? So we have a real disconnect in the IMF. And I think, you know, sort of stepping away from Ecuador a little bit, but getting into this sort of global financial architecture, you know, really speaks to the need for reform there. Right? I mean, this is an institution that is controlled by Europe and the United States, where developing countries don't have the, the, vo the voice in the vote. Right? And, and in, so long as that is the case, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to see uh, significant policy changes from these institutions. Mm -hmm. And just to spell it out, the IMF is the International Monetary Fund. Uh, do you want to give our listeners a sentence or two to explain exactly what it is? Yeah, this is, you know, again, part of sort of the global financial architecture, the Bretton Woods institutions that were created earlier in the 20th century. And, you know, the IMF is really sort of a lender of last resort. I mean, it exists to, to sort of, you know, stopgap when countries are facing these crises. But what we've seen happen is that the IMF comes in and yes, they're going to provide some funding, but they're also going to attach significant conditions to that funding. And it's those conditions that really become problematic. Uh, again, weakening the state, austerity measures, and sort of this belief that, uh, you know, again, that cutting government spending is going to sort of unleash the economy and this economic potential. And, and 
what the results have shown, you know, consistently for many decades, right, is, is precisely the opposite. Yeah. So um, everywhere in the media, there's also talk about um, gangs, international gangs, or at least uh, intercontinental um, gangs who are also responsible to the situation in Ecuador. Talk about that, please. Yeah, of course. I mean, so certainly this has gotten a lot of attention um, recently during the campaign, but also in the last number of years. I mean, e- Ecuador has really uh, sort of experienced a, a total boom in narco trafficking and gang activity. Uh, the prison situation, we've seen multiple just terrible massacres in the prisons, hundreds of people killed in the last couple of years, uh, sort of losing total control over these institutions. And so, you know, I think to begin with, I think, you know, it's important to talk about some of the context here, right? Yes. And under the Correa administration, when, when uh, homicide rates and crime rates were going down, you know, the government had a very intentional policy of trying to work with the gangs, talk with the gangs to create, uh, you know, some sort of structure here. Um, you know, and recognizing the social aspect of, of poverty, right, and of how there is a draw to social organizations, and that they can actually play a positive role when, when dealt with. And that totally stopped. And around the time that that stopped, right, we've seen this sort of disintegration of that, uh, that status quo, that, that relationship. And it certainly had tremendous implications. Now, I think we also have to understand with Ecuador, right, this is a country uh, sitting between the two largest cocaine producers in the world, right? Uh, And so it is a massively important transshipment point in the global narcotics industry, right? And as we've seen supply chain shift, uh, that has also had a big implication for Ecuador. There's a lot more um, trafficking routes now coming out of Ecuador, especially with a destination towards Europe uh, and outside of the United States. And so these sort of global changes that have nothing to do with Ecuador per se have also had tremendous implications. And I think, you know, f- finally, right, I think, you know, it's really important to, to note this. Uh, you know, there have also been allegations of high-level government corruption in Ecuador with the current government, Guillermo Lasso, who is the president, and his association with criminal actors. And so earlier this year, you know, there's a big expose about uh, Lasso and and high-level corruption in his government, including the role of his brother-in-law, Danilo Carrera, and how he oversaw this sort of kickback scheme and involvement of of these criminal organizations within, within, uh, you know, state contracts and things like this. And one of the key witnesses to this, uh, to to this entire thing is a a man named Ruben Sheris. And uh, he was going to become a key witness in in the investigation and he was found assassinated. So as we're talking about these assassinations, that happened earlier this year as well. And in fact, that scandal around the presidency and around these high level, uh, you know, criminal influences within the government is really what sort of precipitated earlier this year impeachment hearings that, that were initiated by the parliament. And rather than uh, see that impeachment proceeding through, the government dissolved Congress and called these elections. So the reason why Ecuador is having these elections right now, right, actually directly relates to allegations of high-level corruption uh, involving the current president with with some of these criminal organizations. And so is, it seems, the uh, murder of Fernando Vicencio, the candidate in the presidential elections. Who who was he and um, what do people think about why he was murdered? Yeah, this is uh, obviously remains a really important question as Ecuador moves forward, both through this electoral process and afterwards. So he was assassinated again right before the first round of uh, the election. He was, uh, you know, a journalist, an investigative journalist, and he had done, you know, a tremendous amount of work over the years documenting high-level government corruption, including, uh, you know, he was a very outspoken and, and vocal critic of, of Correa and Correismo, the sort of political movement associated with the former president. But I think it's also important to note he was also a key figure in the uh, corruption allegations and that that plot involving the current government, Guillermo Lasso, that I mentioned earlier. And in fact, he had given testimony uh, in that case just days before his assassination. And one of the journalists who was really instrumental in in leading the charge on this case, Anderson Boscan, he's had to recently flee the country due to death threats directly related to his work on that case and uh, came out uh, recently just in the last couple of weeks with additional evidence, a recording of one of the um, main actors within this plot actually speaking about, uh, you know, what they would have to do about Fernando, the Fernando problem, right? Um, A pretty clear reference to the assassinated candidate. 
And there were a lot of questions when when the candidate was assassinated over uh, you know, the role of the state in that crime. And in fact, the family's lawyer and multiple family members have even termed it, you know, a crime of the state. You know, this was a candidate who was receiving bodyguards and protection, again, from the state, right, uh, who had a police detail provided by the state. Uh, and yet it was that security apparatus that entirely failed on the day of the assassination. And there were a number of specific things, you know, it, it happened as he was leaving a campaign event. Um, they left through the main door as opposed to the side door. His bulletproof car wasn't there. They used a regular car. The security detail wasn't on the side of the car where the shots actually came from. And the candidate was in the car by himself. Nobody even got into the car with him. And so there was a lot of concerns around the, these sort of facts and circumstantial things around what happened that, that have raised big questions around what role the state played or could have played. Um, and, and not just necessarily, you know, the, the state as, uh, as a sort of one entity, but also corrupt actors within the state, right? Police officers, it's clear there's been high level, uh, you know, infiltration of, of state institutions by criminal actors. Mm -hmm. And also, I mentioned the um, the assassination of Agustin in Triago, the mayor of the port city of Manta. Um, I just recently watched the second um, season of The Wire um, and uh, the corruption that goes around around ports. I think, again, there is... Uh, serious suspicion that ha that really has to do with with the drug um trade yeah certainly i mean manta is an extremely important port in in ecuador right and this is the part of ecuador where um you know the sort of again the transshipment point uh, that has really become such a key location and again especially uh, through those ports which are on the pacific pacific coast right um heading to to europe and to other destinations Yeah. So the elections were held on um, August 21, and left-winger Luisa Gonzalez is leading with 33%, and her closest rival is Daniel Noboa, who is a businessman, and he's on the right, received 24%. The, um, they will go uh, into a runoff on October 15. Tell us uh, a bit about who they are and What does it mean that she is leading? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's, there's no doubt that the assassination just, you know, about a week ahead of the election had an extreme impact on the results. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Luisa Gonzalez received 33%. She came in first. But the polling ahead of that assassination had her receiving a much higher share of the vote and even the potential to win in the first round. After the assassination, there was a, a real media campaign in Ecuador to sort of tie Correismo to the assassination, because, again, this candidate had been a, a big critic of, of Correa. And that clearly had an impact. And, and the second place finisher, Daniel Noboa, uh, you know, just a few weeks before the election was polling around 3%. And so it was a real surprise for him to sort of emerge from that, um, you know, sort of crowded field behind Luisa Gonzalez and, and make it into a second round. Now, in terms of sort of what this means going forward, right? I mean, again, Luisa Gonzalez is the candidate of the, Re the Citizens Revolution Party. This is the party of former President Correa. And she's certainly campaigning on a platform of sort of a return to those, to those days, right? A return to the policies of the Correa era, sort of hearkening back to the, the good old days in Ecuador, right? Um, now, the support she received, 33%, is, is roughly the same as what the party, uh, the Citizens Revolution Party, received in the last presidential election in 2021 when the candidate was Andres Arauz. And yet in the runoff election, Arauz lost to Guillermo Lasso, right? So what we, you know, see, although she is in first, uh, you know, the polling for the second round is actually showing that Naboa is likely the favorite in a runoff election. Hmm with Luisa Gonzalez. And Noboa is an interesting character, right? He is the son of, uh, of Alvaro Noboa, who's a five-time presidential candidate in Ecuador and the sort of scion of one of the wealthiest families in Latin America uh, that runs you know, a large conglomerate with, you know, that touches many different countries, but whose primary business has long been the export of bananas. Uh, and so that is the sort of, um, you know, right wing conservative thing. And in, in many ways, you know, interestingly, though, this election was prompted by rejection of a banker millionaire president, Guillermo Lasso. We now have a another 
corporate millionaire <laughs> presidential candidate, right, who may be the favorite and would largely, uh, you know, represent a continuation of, of the economic and social policies of the Lasso administration. So how, how do you explain that? Well, I think, you know, there's a number of factors, of course, right? And I think, you know, while the, Revo the Citizens Revolution Party has maintained a strong base of support, uh, there is still, you know, a significant factor, uh, segment of the population that is going to vote for the other party, right? And Naboa, I think, has been uh, clever and run a clever campaign and sort of casting himself as sort of the outsider. Uh, he has not taken an explicitly anti-Korea position in the past. And so, I think it's allowed him certainly in that in that first round vote and in voting intention to sort of capture some of that soft Korea voters who might be looking back at the good old times, but not necessarily wanting a return of that specific party. Right. And, and so he certainly seems to have been able to capitalize on that. But I think, of course, you know, polling is just polling and there's still, uh, you know, a month ahead of the vote. And there's still a number of undecided voters, right? And so how this actually shakes out, uh, you know, I think will we'll leave much to, you know, there's still much to be decided. And I think, you know, there's hasn't been tremendous scrutiny on Naboa and his specific platform as well. I mean, he's basically trying to hide the fact that his vice presidential candidate is, uh, you know, a, a sort of real firebrand conservative who's praised Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro and other actors on the extreme right. And so, you know, this is part of his platform. This is part of his political party. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen if that's going to get the, the attention of the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian media. Mm -hmm. Well, one more question. You did mention the prison violence that we've been seeing and a number of massacres in prisons, one of them even in a women's prison. What's going on there? Who's responsible for that? Why is it happening? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, I think, you know, you have uh, a, a state, right, that is ostensibly responsible for the conditions in the prisons and for maintaining this system. But what we've seen instead is is basically been, uh, you know, that, that these criminal organizations have really taken over the prisons, right? And their influence and their control over over what happens uh, is, is pretty significant. And so what we've seen in addition to the massacres, you know, huge cases where, you know, dozens of, of guards have been held hostage by, by inmates um, and really sort of a total loss of control over, over these prisons. Uh, you know, I think that has huge implications, obviously not just on uh, the inmates themselves and in the situation there, but also I think you've, you've seen that spiral out, right? Where criminal leaders in jail can still effectively operate and manage a, a large scale criminal organization that is also quite active outside of prison walls. Mm -hmm. Okay, one really last question. Korea lives out of the country nowadays. Why is that? Yeah, this is an excellent point. I mean, so Korea is currently living in, in Belgium, where um, in, that is because uh, there have been um, charges brought against him in Ecuador. Um, this happened around the 2021 election. So Korea was actually blocked from participating in that election because of these charges. And I think there remain significant questions over the, uh, you know, veracity and, and how those charges actually came to be and whether it is, you know, a case of lawfare or certainly politically motivated. Certainly that's what the former president argues. Uh, and so that has had a tremendous impact on, um, you know, on Ecuador's political environment, right? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of folks who would think that Correa would have won that 2021 election, right? And, and what sort of a situation would be in today if, if he was allowed to run. Mm -hmm. Jake Johnston, Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're looking forward, Jake, to talking to you in a few months about your upcoming book about Haiti. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. And we are going to go straight to our next guest. Uh, Miguel Tinker Salas is author of Venezuela, What Everyone Needs to Know, which will be released soon, I believe. Or maybe it was. You, you tell us, uh, Miguel, in a minute. He's a professor of history and Latin American studies at Pomona College. His previous books include The Enduring Legacy, Oil, Culture, and Society in Venezuela. We did talk with him some years back about Venezuela. Hello, Miguel. Thank you for joining us today. Miguel, he seems to be with us. Miguel, are you maybe muted? <laughs> okay. Um, 
Miguel? All right. Well, um, I guess we'll be calling Miguel and seeing uh, what's going on. We have a nice exchange here between Jake and uh, Miguel. But, um, Jake said, happy to hand the mic to you, Miguel. And Miguel said, best, Jake. Um let me say in the meantime that Guatemala has been facing formidable challenges, weak governance, endemic corruption, pervasive poverty, food insecurity, severe violence, citizen insecurity, shrinking space for civil society, lack of respect for human rights, inequitable access to economic opportunities and social services, and, of course, climate change. And um, all of these are, among other things, a reason that um, we have a lot of Guatemalans trying to get into the United States and find work. I think we have Miguel back with us. Are you with us, Miguel? I am here. Uh, good afternoon, and hello to everybody. Hello to you. Thank you for joining us. And I was um, I was going through the issues that are plaguing Guatemala. The latest challenge, um, the August 20th elections with leftist Bernardo Arevalo's win. And um, what has happened since? Challenges galore from the current right-wing government. Tell us who he is and what has been happening since he was elected to be the next president. Bernardo Arevalo is the son of Juan José Arevalo, uh, a very important leader in Guatemala in 1944, uh, was part of a movement that led to the ouster of Jorge Ubico, uh, a military dictator, and introduced what at that time was known as the Guatemalan Spring that lasted from 44 to 1954 uh, with the U.S.-sponsored coup against Jacobo Arvins. Um, so his, his roots are in that process. His father was exiled to, uh, out of the country, and he was actually born in Uruguay. Uh, so Bernardo Arevalo is a social democrat. Uh, he's, he's been a diplomat. Uh, he's been in the National Assembly. Um, as a result of the 2015 mass protests against corruption uh, that, that happened in the country, uh, he was one of the founders of the Semilla Party, that means seed, um, and it's been um, built up with young volunteers, uh, people who are social media savvy, people who are uh, rejecting the old pact of the corrupt, as they're called in Guatemala, uh, and uh, in the um, primary, primary election, uh, they bolted to the second place position um, and then won um, in the, the most recent election in August, surprising the entire political establishment, winning by over 58 percent of the vote against Sandra Torres, uh, a perennial candidate who got 37 percent. Um, and as you point out, the apparatus of the state uh, cannot accept these results and has, has been trying uh, through legal means uh, to impugn the election. Mm -hmm. Just um, to go um, back for a moment to history, his father uh, preceded Arbenz, is that correct? No, his father was the, the, the first president. Arbenz preceded him. Uh, Arbenz was, was uh, elected after uh, Juan José Arevalo. Yeah. Um, so okay. Juan José Arevalo start, started some of the social reforms, uh, social security system, labor rights, etc. And they were uh, followed later by Jacobo Arbenz, who introduced uh, further land reform uh, and then challenged UFCO, United Fruit Company, which eventually appealed to Washington uh, and there was a CIA-sponsored coup. Yeah, and I will want to get back to it. Hopefully we'll have time um, later. But getting back to the current situation, um, shortly before the electoral tribunal officials declared that he was the victor, um, his party, Semia, as you mentioned, uh, was notified that uh, a branch of that tribunal suspended the party over registration uh, flaws, and uh, the tribunal has since temporarily revoked the suspension order through October, but then very recently the country's top prosecutor's office raided facilities run by uh, the main electoral tribunal, uh, opening dozens of boxes of votes. What, what is that about? What is going on? 
Well, they're trying to impugn the election any way possible. So first they tried to make the party illegal, claiming that six years ago when the party filed this petition, um, that some of the signatures uh, were not legitimate. Imagine that, going back six years to review signatures uh, that have been in some uh, uh, warehouse uh, and reviewing those um, and attempting to use that as a pretext to make the party illegal. Then more recently, after the tribunal declared uh, Bernardo Arevalo and Karine Herrera victors, Karine Herrera is the vice president, um, the attorney general's office went to the warehouse again to look at the results of the June 2023 first round and attempted to examine those. And that led Arevalo and Herrera to withdraw from the transition process because it's very obvious that the state is being used as an apparatus to impugn the election um, and to, to withhold. Um, and what the response has been mass popular protest. Yesterday when there was an event uh, for, for Guatemalan independence, people yelled at the political leaders as liars, traitors, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a tremendous groundswell, and that's critical to maintaining and ensuring this victory. Mm-hmm. So, so what does it mean that Arevalo suspended participation in, in the transition? What, what, the, what are the practical uh, meanings of that? He wants the attorney general and the second attorney general to resign. He wants them to resign because of what the actions that they've done to attempt to impugn the election. Uh, he says the election uh, transition process, which had begun without going President Giamatti, um, have now been suspended until those issues are addressed. The European Union Commission uh, has declared that, again, this is intervention on the part of the state. Even the U.S. State Department has condemned the attorney general's office for inter- intervening uh, in the electoral process. So, again, it's, it's a tit for tat. Arevalo's withdrawal is meant to put pressure on the attorney general's office to cease and desist from trying to overturn the election. Mm-hmm. And um, the Organization of American States Electoral Observation Mission to Guatemala um, had already reported that prosecutors' accusations against the electoral process lack any foundation. Um, does that matter that, that they've said so? It matters to the extent that the, 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 op, the political apparatus within Guatemala has zero legitimacy internationally. It matters that the, that the Organization of American States, the U.S. State Department, uh, and the European Union have all stated that the allegations have no foundation, that they have no basis. Uh, but again, that would not stop um, the, the corrupt politicians in Guatemala. They have held on to power, and again, they're referred to as the Pact of the Corrupt. El Pacto de los Corruptos, uh, who have essentially maintained power uh, and have uh, stolen millions of dollars from the Guatemalan state. Um, and again, we're, we're faced with uh, their uh, incapacity to want to cede power, their unwillingness to cede power to someone who is a reformer, not a radical, but a reformer. Mm-hmm. So tell us specifically about the current president, Alejandro Giamete, um, and he, po- he promised the smooth handover of power, which I know immediately when he said that there were uh, doubts. Uh, but who is he and who is he in the context of recent history? He is a president that promised reform, that promised to be against the corrupt, uh, and in, in practice has been no different than uh, Jimmy Morales before him or the other presidency before him. Every president has been implicated in some level of corruption, as House Jamate, and um, he also, along with Morales, had, had uh, uh, per- persecuted um, the prosecutors that were attempting uh, to root out corruption so that we have cases in which Perez, Juan Francisco Sandoval, who prosecuted a former president, Perez Molina, uh, and the vice president, Roxana Valdetti, um, who had to flee to the U.S. because they were being persecuted by Jametti and by other politicians in Guatemala. And yesterday they were granted uh, asylum in the U.S. because of their work. So again, we have an individual that up until now has been no different than previous presidents and Morales or others, um, and uh, who now all of a sudden attempted uh, to act diplomatically, while on the one hand, uh, on the other hand, the other part of the apparatus uh, was trying to make the election illegal. Yeah, and and it's um, interesting that so-called anti-corruption prosecutor Rafael uh, Cruciche 
um, has been investigating Arevalo's Semia movement. Uh, he led the operation of um, of opening the uh, the boxes with votes. Um, is he an anti-corruption prosecutor, really? No, or who he, who he, is he? He is he is not. He is in a, a off, in the office of of the prosecutor and supposed to deal with corruption. But he is the one who led the the, the uh, de- delegation that went to the warehouse uh, and looked and, re- and attempted to look again at the June 2023 ballots. For what purpose? No one can explain. For what allegation? No one understands. Um, it's again another effort on the part of the apparatus to try to in- to delegitimate uh, what has been up until now. Uh, and by all evidence, a clear victory for Bernardo Arevalo and for the Guatemalan people, I should point out. Because, again, this is, he, he embodies the sentiment of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of individuals who want a different Guatemala, who envision a different Guatemala, not corrupt, one that, that is uh, attentive to the demands and needs of the Guatemalan population and not to a political elite. Yeah. Hello? I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and you mentioned that there was a mass protest yesterday. What is the history of mass protests in Guatemala? Well, the mass protests have led to this point. The fact is that in 2015 there were mass protests against corruption from against Otto Perez Molina and his political car, uh, political uh, confidants, um, and it, it was out of that movement and out of that process that the Semilla Party was founded. And in that sense, Guatemala joins other countries in Latin America. It joins Colombia, it joins Chile, Ecuador, Peru, who at, at, between 2015 and 2018 led massive protests against corruption, against uh, austerity measures, against uh, uh, po- uh, a political class that was out of touch uh, with the reality of their own population. So, yes, popular protests have happened often. Um, but, again, they also led to a certain amount of cynicism because, again, protests occurred, individuals were charged, uh, but the system maintained, the system continued. Um, and that's the critical thing that they're trying to preserve here, extract concessions from Arevalo um, uh, uh, in terms of what he will be able to do or not do, understanding that he does not have a majority in the Congress and understanding that, um, he will have limit, limits in terms of what he can accomplish, but they're trying to circumscribe even more uh, what Arevalo and Herrera and Semilla can accomplish uh, in the Congress. Yeah. And and back to mass protests, have they uh, been brutally repressed in the past by the In some state? cases, they have been brutally repressed. We have to understand Guatemala, as, as we've discussed earlier, um, coming out of the coup in, uh, with Jacobo Arvins, experienced brutal repression under Castillo Armas, the dictator that replaced Arvins. Uh, it experienced brutal uh, uh, violence under uh, Rios Montt, Efraín Rios Montt, uh, who was the de facto president dictator in the 1980s uh, and was accused and, and found guilty of genocide, of ethnic cleansing against the indigenous Guatemalan population, um, only to have his, his uh, conviction overturned. Um, and again, this happened in the 2015, 2016, 2017 period. So we have, a, we have a long history of violent repression and brutal violence against the population of Guatemala, but in particular against the indigenous population of Guatemala with the declaration of free fire zones um, with, again, hundreds of thousands killed. And that, again, leading to the outward migration of Guatemalans um, because of economic uh, conditions, because of political violence, because of repression uh, and, and ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back to the coup against Arbenz. Um, tell us um, more about who he was and uh, what happened and the role of the United States. Jacob Waterman was a part of a young military class Uh, lower-ranking officers, captains, mayors, lieutenants that took part in a mass social movement uh, against uh, Jorge Ubico uh, in 1944 um, and were part of a new generation, what was called the Guatemalan Spring, um, in which we saw changes in Social Security policy, a new labor code, and most importantly, land reform. Guatemala's principal uh, economic engine has always been been agriculture. United Fruit Company, UFCO, was the largest monopoly holder of land in Guatemala. And they held land in abeyance, um, not under cultivation. Um, And uh, and, uh, Ubico targeted the land uh, that uh, um, UFCO had 
that wasn't under cultivation, forcing it to allow it to be sold for uh, land reform or provided for land reform um, based upon the declared value on their, on their taxes, um, which they had completely undervalued. Uh, UFCO had allies, the Dulles brothers in Washington, one Alan, uh, Alan Dulles in terms of the State Department and the CIA. Uh, they also had Eisenhower. Um, they had General Beetle, uh, Beetles, Beetles, I think his name was Beetlesmith. Um, uh, and they were all part of a, of, of a process that eventually led to a coup. And it was a media coup. In fact, they sponsored an army, uh, a small army clique led by Gustavo uh, Castillo Armas. Um, but in fact, what they did was uh, in conduct a media coup claiming that there was tremendous battles at Esquipula or tremendous battles elsewhere trying to destabilize the country um, and undermine, at that time, President uh, Arbenz. Uh, and they succeeded in staging uh, a coup um, coming shortly on the heels of the coup against Mossadegh in Iran um, in employing much the same practices, much the same process um, in trying to use the media um, to destabilize uh, a society. Mm-hmm. What have been the nature of relationships between Guatemala and the United States since? Well, um, since, if you go back to the early period, Eisenhower, of course, supported Castillo Armas. Columbia University gave him an honorary doctorate um, that uh, astonished much of the population in Latin America. Um, and uh, the U.S. during the Cold War was a close ally of the Guatemalan dictatorships. Um, and that's, that's uh, part of the U.S. responsibility in the process of, of genocide in Guatemala. So the U.S. bears responsibility for that, those atrocious events. Um, Jimmy Carter introduced a new policy, quote-unquote, uh, foreign policy based on human rights, uh, which Rios Montt simply dismissed. Um, and any efforts at blocking wep- sales of weapons to Guatemala uh, on the part of the U.S., were replaced by weapons arriving from Israel. Uh, so in that sense, the, the, mil- the Guatemala military continued to have access uh, to the weapons that they needed uh, to persecute their own population. During the Reagan administration, the, the Cold War period with conflicts and civil wars in Nicaragua and El Salvador, Guatemala was an important base of operations uh, and uh, supported by the U.S. as well. Um, and again, it, it continues to be... It's interesting that then when uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to uh, Central America on her trip around about immigration, the, she, was, she couldn't find any support in, in Honduras because you had a, a uh, narco-trafficker and as the president of Honduras. You had Bukele as the president uh, in uh, El Salvador and his authoritarian uh, policies. And so she traveled to Guatemala and was met by Jamete, Jamete um, and where she made her famous, now infamous proclamation, don't come, stay here. Um, so again, the U.S. has traditionally supported uh, the regimes in Guatemala, uh, and uh, I think it bears responsibility for what occurred to the Guatemalan population uh, during the 1970s, 80s, uh, and in the aftermath of the coup against Arvins. Yeah. You mentioned Israel. Um, talk a little more about that, please. Well, these are weapons that the U.S. supplied Israel, and then Israel, in turn, uh, made them available to um, Argentina, made them available to Guatemala, um, and uh, was able, were able to uh, replace um, the weapons that weren't coming from the U.S. at that time. So the U.S. Block, the U.S. embargo was symbolic. Uh-huh, yeah. What is the likelihood, do you think, of a peaceful transfer of power on January 14? I think that, that Semilla has the, the popular support. Um, I think that uh, Bernardo Arevalo and Karen Herrera um, have maneuvered politically uh, very well. Um, but more importantly, I think that their appeal to a broad, massive popular support is the most critical uh, uh, factor. Uh, they, they can appeal to the, to the Guatemalan political system um, because it is ineffective and it is more importantly corrupt uh, and will protect its own interests. Uh, so I think in that sense, uh, the, the, the outlook is, is positive uh, as, as long as they're able to build a, continue to build a mass popular movement um, that uh, will serve as their uh, guarantee that the democratic process is respected.
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that, but like you mentioned before, even if uh, there is a peaceful transfer of power, Arevalo will have a uh, Congress that will not necessarily be supportive. So what do you think might happen? Well, I think we, we have an example in Colombia where you have Gustavo Petro uh, as the president and who does not have a majority in the Congress and has still been able to use the presidency and the bully pulpit of the presidency to promote policies that are, provide more equity, uh, attempt to root out corruption. Um, that doesn't require the Congress as much as it requires political will. Um, so in that sense, I think we have examples throughout Latin America, whether it's Chile, whether it's Colombia, where progressive presidents, progressive leaders are able still to address some of the major concerns, including corruption, including opportunity, employment, uh, taxation, et cetera, um, that may improve conditions for the average Guatemalan. Mm-hmm. So Jake mentioned that even though the currently the left um, candidate for the presidency um, won definitely by uh, something like eight percent over the right wing um, candidate that he is now uh, polling better and and I'm wondering there was um, not that long ago a wave of um, left, candidates actually becoming presidents and and making some difference what what happened to that why are the right wing candidates again um gaining power well no i i think i think you're correct in pointing out we saw um as a result of the 2018 massive protest throughout latin america um when the right had taken power in argentina when the right had taken power in brazil when the right was in power in chile Um, when the right was in power in Peru, we saw massive protests uh, against the austerity measures. Again, the right overestimated their support. Um, the support had not been uh, in support of neoliberalism. The, their, their, their support had been for good government. Um, and they were critical of the left's inability to provide uh, change in conditions uh, or be, had, becoming, had become uh, uh, complacent. Um, but in 2018, we saw a dramatic shift Um, from every country in Latin America, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Peru, Chile, um, Brazil, uh, Argentina, where you saw mass protests that introduced, again, uh, a new set of new political leaders, whether Lula returning in Brazil, uh, but by a slim margin, less than 1%, uh, or Boric in Chile, Gabriel Boric, a uh, former student activist, uh, gaining power in Chile, uh, or uh, in the case of Colombia, Gustavo Petro, Um, or in the case of uh, uh, Honduras, uh, with uh, the, the Libre Party actually winning uh, the election in Honduras as well. Um, and we've seen the return of the left, a, a more moderate left, a more pragmatic left, um, one that is forced to negotiate at many levels in Congresses, which they don't control, um, but still one that speaks to the, uh, I think, uh, larger support for social policy and social programs in Latin America um, that had been there. in the late 2000s and into the current era. Yeah. Well, uh, we have only about five minutes left, and uh, you wanted to talk also about Mexico, where there are some um, hopeful um, developments. Uh, what are they? Well, the election will be July of 2024. Um, we have two candidates. Both of them are women. Um, Xochitl Galvez for the PAN and the PRI, calling themselves the Alliance for Mexico or the PAC for Mexico. Um, and then you have uh, the, on, the, on, the, on the side of Morena, the Green Party and the Workers' Party, Claudia Scheinbaum. Um, so we have two women running against each other uh, with dramatically different perspectives and points of view. Uh, one uh, expressing deepening of a process of change they call the fourth T, the fourth transformation. Um, and uh, the, on the other side, uh, Sochi Galvez claiming her indigenous roots uh, and claiming to be a successful businesswoman with a yet undefined economic program. Um, but which has the legacy of the PRI and the PAN um, running side by side with her. Uh, so in this sense, it's going to be a very dramatic process of uh, political uh, contest in Mexico uh, in which we pit two women uh, that have very different perspectives uh, and very different outlooks um, who may be coming to office at a time when uh, there are changes as well in Washington because next year we're going to have elections in Venezuela, we're going to have elections in Mexico, we're going to have elections in the U.S., 
uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. So there may be change. I uh, just want to note for our listeners, I have not uh, mentioned our phone number throughout this hour. We do not have a receptionist today. I just heard the phone ringing. Um, there's really no time to uh, join anymore, but... Um, If you try to do 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, sorry to, to um, let you know about that later. Um, and uh, Mexico has also recently legalized abortion. Well, the, the Supreme Court said that it is, it is legal. It is the law of the land. Um, it still has resistance in the states, and it still has to be worked out in different states. Um, but I think that, that that's a very significant issue um, that occurred last week uh, and that uh, sets the stage for legalization uh, and the women's rights. I think the other important development that happened last week that didn't get much attention in the U.S. was a meeting in Cali, Colombia, between the, Me the Mexican president, AMLO, and the Colombian president, Gustavo Petro, and the presidents of throughout Latin America that proposed a different policy on the drug war, saying the drug war is over, that we cannot keep using violence um, at the behest of the U.S. to try to persecute what they call a drug war that has failed. And I think that's a very important development as well um, that bodes for a different policy. And this is, again, why I mentioned the importance of these new governments in Latin America. Yeah, and I agree. I agree that it is very important. But what does it mean practically? Because the drug uh, gangs are uh, using violence against the population. So what, what do they do or what are they planning to do? How are they going sure. to live with that situation? That's, that's a very important question, and that's something that they still need to resolve. As you, as you point out, the, the cartels are not just simply uh, local affairs. They are transnational, global, uh, economic, and, and, and military organizations that move not only tremendous amounts of drugs, but also move people, also move other products. and are invested in every country and influence the political outcome in many countries. But I think it's important to underscore that the military solution has failed, that efforts at trying to control traffic of drugs have failed, and that you have to put the attention on the human cost and on the public health issue and address it from a public health perspective and not from a military perspective. And that was the key issue coming out of this conference. Yeah, yeah. Anything else in the last minute that you'd like our listeners um, to know? Well, I think that Latin America is undergoing significant change, and I think it's important for the U.S. to be acknowledged. We just saw a recent delegation of U.S. Congress people throughout Latin America. Uh, we, and it's sponsored by CEPR, in fact, I think the group that Jake works with. Um, and I think that's a very important watershed moment in which to reflect upon the changes of Latin America, how the continent is changing, and how the U.S. must change its foreign policy towards the region, avoid the paternalistic, uh, patriarchal uh, approach of the Monroe Doctrine uh, and of the U.S.'s backyard, and recognize change is occurring in the region and support that process of change. Yeah. Well, Miguel Tinker Salas, author of Venezuela, what everyone needs to know is, was that released already or is it coming up? No, it's been released for a couple, it's been released for a couple of years. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought I got a, a, an old bio of yours and also author of The Enduring Legacy, Oil Culture and Society in Venezuela. He is a professor of history and Latin American studies at Pomona College. Thank you so very much, Miguel, for joining us sure. again. I appreciate now, now it. America, now in America, professor uh, oh okay uh, congratulations <laughs> I'm also America isn't it wonderful <laughs> okay thank you Miguel bye bye and and thanks to uh, Jade and summer STD nor next week as I said we'll be talking about that proposed mine close to us join us bye bye like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition commandeering airways from unknown positions 